Transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California, now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the desert, and it is officially summertime now. No comment. Consolation of these coming months is that each day has a little more darkness. We got some thunder, we got some rain this week. Monsoon season visited the Mojave, it brought dust storms to the endless miles of Phoenix. And left us hot and dry again. I've been putting out more water for the doves and the bunnies, but then I saw something thrashing around in the bird bath. And there's this little fence lizard, about three inches long, is half drowned. I fish it out, I leave it in the shade, and very slowly the lizard dries out and gets it together and walks on down the patio. When the doves are back, the birds with the sweetest souls, the morning doves. A lot of people find it sad, the call of the morning dove. But it's a beautiful song, and it makes you think about it all. And then here comes a big roadrunner making its rounds, and the cactus wrens are noisy and active this time of year. And then I hear another call. It's shrill and weird, and followed by the screech of red-tailed hawks who live up high in the big pinion. And there's a fledgling atop the smaller pine. The second fledgling I've seen from this pair. And it's making that terrified sound. My God, don't leave me out here like this. Let me back in the nest. Bring me some chewed up rat for God's sake. Coveys of quail are chattering and pecking the ground. The latest generation of Mojave cottontails hop around at night. I saw a whole batch of coyote pups, too. Singing together and then disappearing into the junipers and the rocks when they got wind of somebody walking nearby. Springtime in the high desert lasts a little bit longer. The nights are comfortable, the days are bearable if you stay in the shade. The days are best when you sleep through them. Nothing going on anyway. 
nothing good. the desert sky. When this occurs, the birds appear on these usually dry lake beds. Immense flocks of migrating ducks and geese and more exotic species that spot the temporary oasis from high above and settle in while the water lasts, which is not for long. Besides, this is a place of human disturbance. The playa here is for the testing of exotic aircraft at unpredictable hours. In the autumn of 1849, a wagon train of Gold Rush pioneers led by Captain Jefferson Hunt camped at the Dry Lake. Hunt was Kentucky-born and had joined the Latter-day Saints cause at Nauvoo, Illinois. A high priest and a proud polygamist, he had fled Illinois in the wake of Joseph Smith's murder at the hands of an anti-Mormon mob. And he earned his rank in the Mormon battalion before hiring himself out as a trail guide to the 49ers arriving daily in Salt Lake City. Itself still a rough camp that had been settled by the Mormons only two years earlier. The Donner Party had passed through in 1846, had scattered and weary families attempting an October crossing of the Sierra Nevada. Of the 87 souls together at Utah's Wasatch Mountains, only 48 made it over the Sierra. Gruesome tales of their misfortunes sold many newspapers the following spring and discouraged the meek. The southern route that avoided the Sierra was the only choice once snow began falling. The dilemma at Groom Lake was that no one was familiar with the southern trail to the California gold fields. And only the Mormons had any experience with the desert in this party. Here the wagon train split up and wearying misadventures were suffered. The parties would mostly meet up again at the place they would name Death Valley. The name was an exaggeration. Only one of the Death Valley 49ers perished there, and the Tambasha Shoshone have lived in the valley and surrounding forested mountains for a thousand years. It is relatively easy to travel across the Great Basin and Mojave Desert today. People still die on the road or die on day hikes a few miles from busy campgrounds. 
But it takes no special skill to survive the journey, especially as a tourist. Water is secured from faucets and convenience stores. It is unnecessary, unlike in Captain Hunt's time, to read the landscape to correctly guess that Crystal Springs and the Paranagat Valley would have at least a little water. Enough for the people and their starving oxen. Crystal Springs is now served by an automobile rest stop on Nevada's Highway 375. A place where the pioneers would have seen strange figures upon the boulders. Haunting petroglyphs of weird entities looming over bighorn sheep and coyotes and humans. If these confused 49ers went up Mount Irish in search of water and forage for their beast of burden, more of these eerie figures would have been visible. Packed into the boulders hundreds and even thousands of years before the gold rush. This distinctive rock art accessed today by that modern highway is found only within Lincoln County, Nevada. There are two main types of mystery figures here. A decorated rectangle known to anthropologists as the Paranagat Pattern Body Anthropomorph, or PBA. humanoid entity simply called Paranagat Man. One prominent example of the latter makes it clear that this figure is male. What P-Man represents to you will depend largely upon your age and the culture you grew up within. Those who spent a lot of time watching television at the turn of the century might see Bender the alcoholic robot from the animated series Futurama. The devout may see the devil of their nightmares. With its long bony fingers and hollow expressionless eyes. Unlike many ghostly floating figures of ancient rock art, Paranagat Man usually has humanoid limbs, legs, feet, jointed arms, hands with fingers and thumbs. And if you are familiar with the folklore of extraterrestrial alien pilots visiting the Earth in spaceships, these figures on the desert rocks look like space monsters. Aliens. No one is sure how old they are or who made them. It's notoriously difficult to carbon date ancient rock art, as petroglyphs in particular don't rely upon organic paint or pigment. And radiocarbon dating is less helpful without the presence of carbon. But educated guesses can be made based on the relative age of nearby artifacts such as rubbish piles and ancient campsites. And at least some of the Baranagat Valley figures and patterns are pictographs. Made with charcoal or blood or plants or whatever else was available for dyes and paints. 
petroglyphs, which get their color from exposing the rock surface beneath the natural desert varnish that often covers weather-exposed boulders, tend to outlive their painted companions. This is why various experts will claim the Piranigat rock art dates back more than 3,500 years. Or 5,000 years. Or maybe only 500 years. Crude stick figures of Spanish horsemen argue for later dates. But the large and elaborate figures of the entities share nothing but a canvas with those post-colonial scribbles. What is known is that people have lived in the Paranagat Valley for at least 12,000 years. Those first inhabitants were the Patillon and Anasazi. And most archaeologists believe that these early Pueblo peoples created the astonishing rock art figures of southern Nevada. Modern Shoshone, Paiute, Mojave, Ute, even Comanche who split from the Shoshone and made the mostly dry White River their western territorial boundary, have occupied the territory since the arrival of the Spanish. Figures of sprightly bighorn sheep and human families of parents and children require little interpretation. But the immense gap in time, culture, language, and mythology makes it impossible for either archaeologists or today's native peoples to accurately read the abstract and symbolic rock art, which was left by prehistoric tribes. What should we make of the striking images left behind by ancient nomads in the Mount Irish wilderness? such as the insect-like humanoid standing next to what looks to modernize like a giant sombrero or a 1950s flying saucer. What do we make of the human figure cowering behind his shield? In the paranoid peacetime gap between World War II and the Cold War, the UFO era was born. And it began in the western United States over the course of a few early summer days in 1947, with the pilot Kenneth Arnold sighting of a fleet of boomerang-shaped silvery craft over Mount Rainier, followed by hundreds of sightings by other credible witnesses. By July 8th of that year, only two weeks after Arnold's sighting, Roswell Army Airfield in New Mexico announced that the, quote, many rumors regarding the flying disc became a reality, end quote. Supposedly, a crashed disc was retrieved from a local rancher's rangeland. The U.S. military would spend half of the next century walking back that press release. Groom Lake began its military life as a World War II aircraft gunnery range, and the isolation of the dry lake made it the choice of California's aerospace industry for the testing of incredible new surveillance aircraft for the escalating Cold War. Lockheed was working on a fantastic high-altitude spy plane. The secrecy around the project meant that Edwards Air Force Base in the western Mojave was too visible, too close to Southern California civilization. The 
Lockheed plant in Palmdale had the same problem. Too many people around and above. And so Lockheed's Kelly Johnson took part in an aerial reconnaissance in 1955. With 50 sites under consideration, Johnson took a hunting trip by plane and was shown Groom Lake. Surrounded by high, barren mountains and buffered by the immense Nevada test site. Man alive, said Johnson, the U-2 spy plane's chief designer. We looked at that lake and we all looked at each other. It was another Edwards. So we wheeled around, landed on that lake, taxied up to one end of it. It was a perfect natural landing field. This extension of Edwards Air Force Base would be kept quiet. Even the name was secret and only barely acknowledged by the CIA in 2013. There are competing theories about where Area 51 came from. Johnson named the site Paradise Ranch. When the CIA referred to the site internally, it was either Groom Lake or Homey Airfield. The high-altitude testing of the U-2 and SR-71 Blackbird caused people in and around Las Vegas to believe they'd seen UFOs. Which technically is exactly what they had witnessed. But the alien lore surrounding this airfield was a distinct product of the 1980s. As the Clark County population swelled into fresh desert suburbs, and the new residents began enjoying the clear night skies, there were many rumors about the base beyond Nellis and the Nevada test site. Private pilots were sternly warned away from the area, and employees arrived by a secret airline that flew out of McCarran Airport, right off the Las Vegas Strip. There was already a paranormal late-night talk show on local radio, pre-Art Bell, and there was a wealthy hotel developer in Las Vegas named Robert Bigelow who had a deep personal interest in the UFO mystery. A number of flying saucer conspiracists were already obsessed with the eastern boundary of Area 51, including John Lear, son of the Learjet founder and reportedly a CIA contract pilot. It was John Lear who supposedly introduced a KLAS-TV reporter named George Knapp into the flying disc subculture. 1987. And some two years later, Robert Lazar appeared on the KLAS TV news to claim he'd worked on reverse engineered flying saucers. Lazar's voice was electronically altered and his face was in shadow. And he was originally identified only as Dennis. Lear had become a friend of both Lazar and Knapp. Lear vouched for Lazar and claimed they had both witnessed UFOs and test flights over Area 51. Bob Lazar's Area 51 story sounded goofy to real physicists, and his personal life was a mess of running away from bad debt and knocking around the Southwest. 
from his community college in the Los Angeles suburbs to New Mexico and next to Las Vegas. Land of third chances. And then there was the bigamy and moving into his dead wife's house with the new wife. And the felony conviction for running an illegal brothel in Clark County. Prostitution is allowed in some Nevada counties, including neighboring Nye. But these backroad bordellos are far from the lucrative tourist trade in Vegas. It did not matter that Lazar had puffed up his resume to include advanced degrees from MIT and Caltech. Even though his academic records are limited to some classes at Pierce Community College in the San Fernando Valley, it did not matter much that the one professor Lazar could name from MIT or Caltech turned out to be a teacher at Pierce Community. Bob Lazar delivered the story and the story hit a nerve. For 30 years after he told his incredible tale on local television, that he had worked for a few weeks on recovered flying saucers at an unknown sub-base called S-4. Lazar mostly lived in obscurity. The new mythology did not need him. It just needed a new Roswell. Area 51 became a meme of the first kind, a deep mythology that burrowed into the collective consciousness and never really left. The X-Files and Independence Day brought the paranoid tales to primetime television and summer blockbusters. Video games, pop music, comic books, and the early internet message boards elaborated the theology. Like Roswell before it, Nevada's Area 51 became a collective dreamland of extraterrestrial secrets. Pilots have been referring to the top-secret Air Force Base at Groom Lake as Dreamland for years. Strange things were seen over this easternmost extension of Edwards Air Force Base. Wonders in the sky. Some were eventually revealed as the SR-71 and U-2 spy planes. Some were Russian jet fighters stolen from Soviet airfields. And some remain unexplained. Lights dancing in the sky, things that hovered with no visible or audible means of propulsion, sinister black triangles making 180-degree turns and shooting off like meteors. Nevada is mostly federal land, and Area 51 is part of a vast secret complex that includes the nation's nuclear testing grounds at Yucca Flat, Nellis Air Force Base, and the heavily litigated nuclear waste dump within Yucca Mountain. On the northeast side of Area 51, where Highway 375 skirts the base's buffer zone, tourists have been coming for a quarter century to drink alien-labeled bottles of beer at the Little Alien and take some pictures by the rural mailbox that marks a dirt road leading to the edge of the base. There used to be an alien research center down the road in Heiko, too, with a giant metallic space alien standing sentry outside the souvenir shop. 
The Nevada Commission on Tourism quickly recognized the value of the alien legends in the 1990s, and in 1996, the state highway was renamed the Extraterrestrial Highway. Actors from the movie Independence Day and the television show Star Trek The Next Generation attended the opening ceremony with then-Governor Bob Miller. A box of science fiction souvenirs went into a time capsule and Rachel, the contents of which will likely baffle archaeologists of the future as the Paranagate Man baffles us today. The rock art can be difficult to find and that's on purpose. Whether under the administration of a tribe, a military base, a national park, or the Federal Bureau of Land Management, Petroglyphs and pictographs usually take a little effort to reach. Any archaeological treasure too close to the paved roads is at risk of casual destruction. Zytex and across the great Mojave wilderness. This is Desert Oracle Radio broadcasting from Joshua Tree and I'm your host Ken Lane with soundscapes composed and performed by Red Blue Black Silver. We broadcast on Friday nights at 10 p.m. from our home base in Joshua Tree KCDZ 107.7 FM and at various times across the southwest and beyond on good community stations including Valley 104.9 FM in King County that's King County, Washington State and I identified that station by the wrong frequency on a recent broadcast I mixed up a number and I won't say which one because that would only compound the problem. I guess this happened because they never sent me a bumper sticker. You see, I read the station frequencies off this old file cabinet here in the studio where I put all the radio station stickers. And Valley 104.9 FM, Incarnation in the Snoqualmie Valley. Well, I was just pulling that from faulty memory, I guess. You can find us online at DesertOracle.com. Five years of radio shows. A subscription to the final issues of our pocket-sized journal. And you can support this show however you like. Some people do it on Patreon.com forward slash Desert Oracle, which I sure do appreciate. Or you can pick up our Desert Oracle Volume 1 paperback. Six months on the Los Angeles Times nonfiction bestsellers list. Including this month, June of 2022. It's available at bookstores everywhere. Be careful in that heat out there. We already lost a tourist in Death Valley. 
Good night from the voice of the desert.